Death will come to us all. This is certain. And yet, there seems to be so much stigma, taboo, fear and difficulty surrounding this inevitable part of life. I'm Sultram, and this is What About Death? Everything you wanted to know about death, but were afraid to ask. Thank you for listening to What About Death podcast brought to you by karuna.org.au. If you like this episode, be sure to follow, subscribe and give us a five-star rating. We'll be posting new episodes every two weeks, so there's more to look forward to. In today's episode of What About Death, I have the great pleasure of speaking with Dr. Joanne Cacciatore, who is the founder of the Miss Foundation, and the Cellar Care Farm in the USA. Dr. Cacciatore is a tenured professor, researcher, and senior Wrigley Institute of Sustainability Scholar at Arizona State University. Her area of expertise is traumatic death, and she is also the author of a beautiful and very best-selling book called Bearing the Unbearable. I really welcome you to our podcast today. I really appreciate the invitation to be here with you and everyone else. So uh, my first question to all of my guests is, what is your first recollection, memory or experience of death? Oh, my very first one. Gosh, it was probably one of our family pets named Lulu. She was a Doberman pincher who died and uh, she was quickly replaced with another dog we had a dog-loving family, uh, and we always had a, a dog. And then my my grandparents died shortly after that. Two of my grandparents were dead before I was born. And then the other two died when I was in my young to mid-20s. And um, then my daughter died. And that that was quite different than, than the other deaths. It was um, what I would call a traumatic death. And thus, the resulting effects were traumatic grief. So that was in 1994, and it sent me into a uh, an existential crisis of epic proportions, questioning my identity, the purpose of life, whether or not I could live in a place where someone I loved so much could die so suddenly and so abruptly, questioning if I wanted to live in a world that felt so lonely in grief, because grief is such a lonely experience, isn't it? And um, so that was that the catalyst for you to start your work and your research around grief and loss? It was. I am naturally a researcher anyway. I'm, I'm, I'm an investigator, and I like to delve into deeply into subjects in which I have an interest. And death was not one of those subjects. But then she died. And so I began to research why I couldn't seem to want to live. And there was really very little in the research. I couldn't really find much. There were a few studies from the 70s, a couple from the 80s, but really just a dearth of research. And I thought to myself, well, I guess I'm guess this is what I'm going to dedicate my life to, and that's how I came to the research and practice. Um, I became a counselor as well, and then started a nonprofit to help other families. I thought 
there was very little support for me and and very little in terms of um, resources for me after my daughter died and I had three other children I was supposed to take care of and didn't know how to take care of them because I couldn't even take care of myself. And I thought to myself, if I live through this, I'm going to make sure that other people don't have to go through this experience alone. And so that's when I started the foundation. So you have this interest in uh, traumatic death. What was the, you know, what drew you to that as a, a focus in particular? Well, because the way that my daughter died was traumatic and I recognized that it was quite different from, for example, the deaths of my grandparents, you can, uh, you know, who were in their 80s and their death was expected and still sad, not that there's not grief, indeed there is, but the tra- trauma piece really added a sharp edge. I I had a lot of somatic symptoms. I had quite a lot of difficulty sleeping. I didn't want to eat. I I couldn't think clearly. I didn't know how to regulate my emotions. And there was so little support and so little information specific to that piece, the traumatic grief piece, that I thought, well, this just isn't grief. This is something different than just your average grief, if you will when your when your 85-year-old grandparent dies and again there was just so little specific to this that I thought well I have to study this and I have to figure out how to help other people at some point when I've done my work what do you think is the reason behind the fact that there was so little information or research or expression i guess of grief back then ooh that is an Excellent question. And I don't know the answer to that other than there was, there's generally a reticence in our, I call it the happiness cult. In our happiness cult society, there's gen, there's a general reticence to approach really intense suffering. And we tend to marginalize people who have suffered a great deal and, you know, really push the happiness narrative, just choose happiness just let go, uh, choose joy. <laughs> you know, your loved one wouldn't want you to be sad. Your child wouldn't want you to be sad. And, and we tend to, in a way, make the painful emotions somewhat anathematic, somewhat sort of uh, foreign and undesirable. And I never felt that way. I remember going to a psychologist early after Shy died. And, you know, this, the psychologist was you know, basically talking to me and I was weeping, you know, I was crying. It had been a few months since my, since my daughter's death. And he said, you know, I could get you a referral to a psychiatrist for some medications. I said to him for what? And he said, well, you know, you're awfully sad. And I said, well, I'm sad because my daughter died. Yes. And he said, but, but you were describing, you know, that you cry a lot. And I said, yes for a reason. And, and I said to him, you know, these are my tears and you're not taking those away. Our love was worth these tears and I'm not going to relinquish them to you or to anyone else. And I, I really never found a relational home as Bob Stollero would call it. I never found a relational home in any therapist or therapy after my daughter's death, despite trying for quite a while. 
it is interesting, isn't it? Because, um, I mean, sadness and grief are uh, a natural part of the human condition and yet we have this fear and this aversion, both I think as individuals and as a society and even culturally in some cultures. So what do you think has motivated this um, this theme of happiness and the I mean, I often call it the flat line, you know, that we have this flat line of happiness yeah. and we, we never move off this flat line. So what do you think it is about culture and society that, that has, you know, perhaps inspired that? First of all, you know, I mean, happiness sounds like a really good thing. If you go out and ask 40 people on the street, what do you want from your life? Probably 37 are going to say happiness, right? Mm, yes. <laughs> And so, I, I, I mean, ha- nobody wants to be unhappy, yeah. but there's a difference between wishing we didn't have to be unhappy and responding appropriately to a traumatic loss or a traumatic circumstance or to significant significant loss or to catastrophe for that matter. And And I think to some degree, perhaps some religions might even promote that, you know, this idea of if you just do these things, you'll have a blessed life or you'll have grace. And and I think the kind of the general spiritual canon in a lot of places is if you follow the rules, uh, you'll be happy. You know, and and actually, <laughs> it's quite far from the truth. Yes. <laughs> I always say my 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 grief is a way, my spirituality is a way into my grief, not out of my grief. So you are also a Zen priest. So when did uh, when did the philosophy of Zen come into your life, and and was your the death of your child also a catalyst for that? Oh, uh, I th- I think my the death of my daughter was a catalyst for my Zen practice. I, but it didn't come until later. It came somewhere around two thousand nine, I believe, eight or nine, and I I felt a pull toward meditation for quite a while. And I, I would practice, but I, I, I kept telling myself the story, you're not doing it right, you're not doing it right, because <laughs> I, I had pretty discursive mind. And then when I, when, one day I, I well, it, it actually started because I had my daughter disinterred, and I had a, a, a reaction, a, a re-traumatization. I, I, I don't, I would still have her disinterred, I had her disinterred and cremated, which is what I wanted to do originally, but I I was sort of, people were making decisions for me. I was so traumatized. So many years later, I ended up having her disinterred. And during that period of time, I I felt the trauma in my body, but I knew enough. There was an I who stands above, who this wise sort of sage consciousness that said, oh, you're being re-traumatized. Now might be a good time to start a practice. And so I started to research meditation and then found my meditation teachers, found my, uh, my two Roshis in 2010, I believe, 2010 or 2011, and started formally studying Zen. Um, but, I, but before that, I had been sort of uh, dabbling in my own practice of meditation and con- contemplation. I, I feel like I was being, I was just waiting for, to be ready for it, you know? Yes, yeah. <laughs> I yes. do. <laughs> yes. yes, I do. Yes. So what do you think uh, is behind people's fear of grief? 
Particularly, oh. I guess, in the West. I mean, it seems to be, you know, it's like a denial of death. You know, in the West we have this, you know, there's a great stigma around, or there at least there appears to be a great stigma and taboo around dying and death and grief and uh, and it's curious, you know, to me, I guess. Yeah. So what what's your experience of that? Yeah. First, I'd like to kind of delineate what I think is going on because I think there are two separate issues. I think there's this fear of death and dying and, and mortality salience uh, for our own, you know, for our own physical bodies, right? So I think people are scared to plan for their own death. I think that some people are scared to talk about death um, and even even perhaps the deaths of parents or grandparents might be hard for some people to talk about. Things like advanced directives can be hard for some people to enact. So there is this general fear of death and dying, but what I see in my work even more so is a fear of grief, especially when it's traumatic. And that's very different because grief is more, usually, more about the survivors, the people who are feeling the loss of the person who died. Whereas the death and dying fear is often about our own fear. And so the traumatic grief piece is interesting because I think when, when you start talking about certain kinds of deaths, you can clear out a room because people are absolutely, utterly terrified of feeling the kind of deep grief that people feel after a significant loss, like, like a, a, a partner, like um, a child like a sibling, a suicide, a homicide, those kinds of deaths tend to evoke a lot of fear. The elicitation of that fear makes people sort of contract and pull away from grievers. And that is extremely deleterious to grieving people because it, it, impa it impairs their capacity to trust the world and it, and it, and it increases their likelihood of feeling lonely. And as we know from recent research, loneliness is a public health problem. And it's not just a psychological problem. Um, there's a, a few researchers have done some studies on loneliness and found that loneliness uh, predicts uh, premature mortality and health issues even more so than common risk factors like smoking. And so, so feeling lonely in grief, I mean, grief itself is hard enough and then add trauma to it, and then add loneliness to it, and people are really hurting out there. And I think that contributes that, that sort of fear of, for example, if my six-year-old died of cancer and I go to a, to a work event and there are, it, maybe it's six months later, and there are, most of my colleagues are there, and they have children, you, th there is no way that some of my colleagues can't possibly be considering the fact that their own child might be vulnerable. And that makes people avert their gaze. It makes people withdraw and turn away because if I don't see it, I don't have to confront the vulnerability of my own children or my own family. I mean, vulnerability is such a, a challenging thing generally for people to... Uh, allow themselves to experience vulnerability. And I guess when you're looking at the inevitability of death and the unpredictability and uncertainty of it, yes, it's. I can see that it would be very hard for people. Yes, it is extremely hard for people. And, and I understand why it's hard for people. What people, I, 
what a lot of grieving people say to me is that they feel like they they feel like lepers. They'll be in a grocery store and see a neighbor and the neighbor will make eye contact and literally turn around and go the other way or they'll go to they'll go to synagogue or church and it it's a month later and they haven't been there since their loved one died and no one mentions it. They just say, "Oh, hi, it's good to have you back," as if nothing happened. And and then the the fear is oftentimes when I talk to other people who are not grieving people, they say, "Well, I don't want to make them sad." But I think there's a deeper fear, and I think it's the deeper fear of vulnerability that someone I love this much could die, and I might have to be this person, and I don't want to think about that. And the reality is that actually when we think about that act, the truth of that vulnerability, it can actually make our time with the people we love, it can en enrich our time with the people we love. It makes us more appreciative of that time. It, we take a lot less for granted when we, when we contemplate, when we keep in our mind space and our heart space, the reality of finitude. So you talk about in your book about how grief and love uh, mirror each other. What do you mean by that? Well, I, okay. So if I, if my, if I, if I like my neighbor and I think my neighbor is a very nice person and my neighbor dies, uh, but I don't love my neighbor, but I like my neighbor, I'll feel sad and I'll feel like, oh, that's, that's so hard for her family but I'm probably not going to be in a place of deep grief. I don't see that my grief for my daughter who died will ever end because my love for her will never end. And as long as I love her and she's missing from my life, I'm going to miss her and grieve for her. And, the, and it's quite normal, but we, but we do in our cultures tend to see it as aberrant or pathological, which I think is really... Um, it's odd to me, but more than odd, it's also dangerous because it creates a lot of self-doubt in grievers themselves. So they, so they start to wonder, gosh, maybe something's wrong with me. You know, maybe I have a mental illness. Maybe I have a problem simply because they are still experiencing grief. And the, the reality is if the person you love is still missing from your life, and the loss was catastrophic, you're probably going to feel intense grief for a long time. And if it's not catastrophic, you're at least going to feel some type of nostalgic grief for, for a while, if not your life. My, I wasn't terribly close to my grandparents. They didn't speak English. My family, I come from an immigrant family and my grandparents didn't speak any English. Um, and so I wasn't terribly close to them. But I felt sad that they died. I felt sad because it was hard on my my mother and I saw what it did to her. And I felt sad that they died. But but I wouldn't say that all these years later that I I still grieve for them because I, I, I really don't really grieve for them. And that's okay. And it doesn't mean that I don't necessarily love them. I probably just on the continuum of love, I wasn't as attached or didn't have as deep a love for them as I did for my parents who died when I, were, when I was in my 30s, and I do still grieve for them. Or my daughter, who died when I was in my late 20s, and I do still grieve for her. Does that make sense? Yes, of course. Yes, yeah. because it's about meaning, isn't it? It's how you place the meaning on the thing, person, situation, experience, or whatever it is that you've lost. 
Yes, yes. It's it's about meaning and attachment and love and and all the things that make someone quite important to us. All of those things, all of that love, all of that libidinal energy that we invest in someone because we love them deeply, when they die and there's a severance of that relationship in the physical world, then the then the sort of the uh, the protestation to that in a way is grief. Uh, you know, grief is, is love. It's just has, it, it's just that the person isn't there to receive it anymore. And so, so it becomes this grief that we have to figure out, okay, how do we, how do we work with this grief? How do we create space for it to be? How do we accept how we feel about what happened? I don't think, um, I don't think you have to accept what happened, but you, but at some point, if we don't accept how we feel about what happened, we're going to enter a rather acrimonious relationship with our emotional self. So you you said a little bit earlier that um, that we can tend to pathologize grief, and I think we can also medicalize and uh, pathologize trauma. So how do you think that affects the grief? I'll use the word process when we medicalize and pathologize rather than see it as you know a natural. Uh, component of uh, loss. Well, there there are the the more the more draconian ways that it can be really deleterious, and the less draconian ways. So, for example, uh, the one of the more draconian things that I see in my work, and I've been doing this for a quarter of a century, uh, are things like electroconvulsive therapy to treat, uh, you know, what what was diagnosed as depression, but really was bereavement. Uh, you know, it was a bereaved mom who lost her only child to suicide. And she was treated with 12, 12 rounds of electroconvulsive therapy, followed by four different psychiatric medications. That's serious business. Um, psychiatric hospitalizations are not uncommon. It's definitely something I see quite often. And I don't know about in Australia, but in America, psychiatric hospitals are not uh, warm and fuzzy, compassionate places with trees and sky and loving others. So that would be sort of the extreme end of what I see. And, and I see that as quite harmful, actually. It takes me a long time when I've worked with someone like that. It takes me a long, long, long time to undo the additional layers of trauma foisted onto them by systems of, quote, care that are really systems of trauma, re-trauma. And it, and it breaks my heart to see it happen. It makes their process of grieving a lot more complicated. On the, on, the, on the less draconian end, if someone doesn't get sort of thrust into the, you know, traditional treatment as usual mental health system because of bereavement, then what I see is people questioning themselves, not trusting their own emotions, really having a crisis of identity that entails, you know, what's wrong with me that I can't quote, get over this. I hear that a lot. What's wrong with me that I can't get over this? And what's incredible is when they sit down with me and I say, you know, most people who have lost a child, a sibling, a spouse, say that they feel the same way you do. And they go, really? <laughs> you know, because everyone's been telling me I'm abnormal or something about the way that I'm grieving isn't normal and that I need to get over it and that I need to put it behind me and I need to move on and forget about it and live my life. And I just everything in me says that's not right. And, and I love Walt, what Walt Whitman says when he says, you know, if it insults your soul, dismiss it. And so, and so I teach people how to be discerning 
in terms of what guidance or advice from what whomever they internalize, whether it's from their spiritual leader, their medical doctor, their psychiatrist, their social worker, or their best friend. Just be careful what you internalize because people who are on the outside of this experience cannot yet know what it is to be on the inside of this experience. So it sounds like, you know, as individuals, we can have a particular view, as you say, you know, often people have a similar um, experience of grief and can have empathy around that. But that seems to convert from a society perspective to far greater judgment and, and criticism and, you know, move on. Why do you think that is? Why do you think society struggles to have this empathy uh, and understanding towards those who are grieving? Well, well, we're very focused on productivity, aren't we? <laughs> and grieving people are not very productive, at least not the first, not in early grief, right? When, when we're suffering, we want respite. We want calm. We want to pull our energy in. We don't want to produce. Well, maybe some people do because that's a way of coping. But most people feel rather shut down. Their cognition is affected. Their memory is affected. They just aren't feeling very productive. They've lost interest in things that used to interest them because it no longer feels important. Being a, a, a football sportscaster may not seem important if both of your children died in a plane crash. You may feel like there's something more important in the world for you to do than that. And so we, because we value productivity and because we push happiness on people, we peddle happiness. I, I, I mean, it's just, um, it's such a, a, a risky combination uh, when, when, it's, when confronting grieving people because what grieving people just want is some time and space and for someone to hold and see them, you know, to hold their grief and to see their pain. You know, grieving people probably aren't the best employees right away. Um, I did in one of my analyses, one of my analyses with colleagues, a research study that we published, looked at the the cost of traumatic grief in society, and, and it costs society quite a lot. Traumatic grief costs society quite a lot. And present presenteeism, people going to work costs just as much as people not going to work because people are forced to go to work, but they're not being productive. In fact, it costs more. Employee presenteeism actually costs a little bit more than employee absenteeism. Well, people went to their jobs, but just didn't do them because yes. they couldn't focus, they couldn't concentrate, they don't care. And maybe sometimes they just don't care about their jobs anymore. So, so that, that's a, that's, I think that's part of the issue. And, and, and the, the sad, the really sad thing, one of my colleagues, Vanessa Juth, who has done quite a lot of research in this, and she looks at something that, that we call in the research social constraints. And that is, you know, sort of pressure to go back to work, pressure to move on, pressure to not feel grief, pressure to not be so sad. Those kinds of social constraints predicted both psych elongated psychological and physiological problems in grieving people. So it, it didn't just prolong their emotional and psychological agony. It also created more physiological symptom, symptoms of illness in grieving people. Do you think there's also a level of impatience, you know, just simply because, you know, we function from a, or we tend to function from a position of self-interest. And so when others are impacting on my self-interest because of their experience, we become impatient, 
lack of empathy and understanding around those who are grieving? Oh, I, I absolutely do. And I think it ties into the happiness cult. Well, think about it. So a group of friends going out to dinner together, it's a uh, quote, girls night out. This happened recently with a client. It's girls night out. It's been nine months since her son died, her only son died. And it's a girls night out and they invite her. And she sees a little boy in the restaurant who's the same age as her son. And she gets sad and she starts to, you know, tearing up and, you know, and the people around her are like, oh, honey, let's get you a drink. Right. Of course, there's impatience that it it's, uh, you know, it's a downer to be around. I mean, if you want to go out and have fun, the grieving person is not the person to invite. Right. And so there's impatience with that. There's impatience with sometimes sometimes grieving people have to review the story over and over or want to talk about the person who died and other people don't want to talk about it. Sometimes there's fear, for example, at family holidays that um, that the grieving pe- the grieving person keeps bringing up the person who died and everyone gets this sort of awkward silence and they get sometimes resentful that we, we're just here to ha- enjoy our holiday together. We don't want to, we don't want to be sad. We don't want to cry. This is our time to get together. And so there is an impatience. There is a sort of how long are you going to be sad? The irony of it is that at, at family holidays like that, if if they get the acknowledgement out of the way, if people just stand around the table, hold hands and say, you know, we miss Johnny. Johnny's an important part of our family. Can everyone share their favorite memory of Johnny and then share it and cry and get it over with? And you've, you've broken the tension and, and it's, it may be the best holiday people have because it's it, because now it's more intimate and it's deeper and you've broken the tension of we we don't want to talk about that everybody avoid it what if she cries you know just get it over with at the beginning of the event so a lot of times people in their impatience don't realize that they are prolonging the very thing they wish would stop that's interesting yes so you also talk about the difference between public and private grief So uh, how do they differ? And then how do they in their own way affect the process of grief? And I guess in particular, the experience of traumatic death. So, yeah, this is really difficult because when someone dies and it's a very public tragedy um, and people have watched scenes on television or on the news or read articles about it in the newspaper or online and there's been a lot of talk about it, the people, people feel the emotions of the event because it's highly publicized. And because they're feeling some reaction to it, they sort of, in a way, tend to take ownership of it. And um, sometimes that's okay as long as it doesn't go too far and the needs of what I call the primary grievers are not neglected in favor of, in a sense, public will. So, for example, uh, let's take a celebrity death. Let's take the death of um, a celebrity figure who a lot of people know and love from a distance, but not really, because they don't. They know the celebrity, the celebrity persona, if you will, but they don't know the celebrity, the person, the father, the husband, uh, the brother, the sister, right? 
And, and it can be sometimes hard for family members in these kind of very public situations to listen to people take ownership of this grief. And that's why when something like that does happen in the public, um, my only comment on it is that I feel for that person's family and friends. Because I, I recognize, and I've worked with enough, enough primary grievers to know how hard it is for people to be talking about their loved ones as if he or she or they belong to the public. It feels like that when we've watched it. We, we are immersed and we're invested and we're engaged. And I always remind people, please remember, there is an actual family who's missing someone from a bedroom tonight. And those are the people who are really suffering. I hope you'll join me next time for part two of my conversation with Dr. Joanne Cacciatore. Dr. Jo continues to share her expertise and insights into traumatic death and grief. And she tells us about her amazing cellar care farm and how connecting with animals can be a very powerful way to understand, respect, normalize, and process traumatic grief. I look forward to your company then. Thank you for listening to What About Death podcast brought to you by karuna.org.au. If you like this episode, be sure to follow, subscribe, and give us a five-star rating. We'll be posting new episodes every two weeks, so there's more to look forward to.